0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 8 and we're dealing with a period in the early 1970s as the border war began to escalate and the first death of an SADF soldier was recorded inside Angola. The Portuguese had fought a 10-year war in Angola by early 1970 which was showing some signs of success until the rug was pulled out from the local military and security forces because of a military coup in Lisbon. The South African support for the Portuguese in Angola had escalated through the 1960s And by 1968, the South Africans began providing Alouette III helicopters with crews to the Portuguese Air Force. Meanwhile, in April 1973, the SA Defence Force assumed responsibility for border protection of South West Africa from the SA Police, who had struggled to maintain control in the face of the increased insurgency by SWAPO. The SWA command consisted of Vintuk Kutmantane and Volfes Bay, which was commanded at that time by Colonel Ian Gleeson. Officer commanding South West Africa was Yanni Heldenhuis, a person we're going to hear a great deal about in this series. Apart from the permanent force members and a few national servicemen at Grootfontein and Valfors Bay, there were also part-time soldiers known as the Citizen Force of 24 Brigade and others in what was known as the Local Commando Force. There were unusual characters in these forces such as Colonel Kurt Teron and the members of Commandant Hans Heinrich Otto Denk's 112th Commando Squadron, which had its own light aircraft as a spotter plane. The concept of local armed militia was a long tradition in South Africa's frontier communities. For many arriving in the southwest, it was the unbelievable isolation and beauty that captured attention. The sun rises over the Kalahari Desert and sets over the Namib Desert, the oldest in the world. The land between is a surprise to most. Savannah and lush in places, and yet it is a tough country, which tests all those who live and work there. The country demands a lot of visitors, and at the same time, it's a place for pioneers, as Yanni Chalne says in his book At the Front. Everything revolves around the rain. By October, people begin looking out for signs. Everything is barren, dry, and dusty. Local citizen commandos and even the permanent force members are affected by this harshness, and the SADF discovered that the best time to gather these ad hoc units together was between October and January. That was when the rains had come and good cheer had also come to the people. They were just more motivated in that period. But it's not the best time to conduct a mobile war. The rains bring the mud, the raging rivers, obscured visibility, and the thunderstorms, which means no air support. And Southwest was about to be shaken by an event in Europe that triggered a civil war in Angola. That was when Portugal's military dictatorship was overthrown in the Carnation Revolution, also known as the 24th April, which was 1974. A military coup took place which ejected the authoritarian regime headed up by Marcel Caetano, and the uprising was led by the Armed Forces Movement, or AFM, composed of military officers who wanted a new system. It was the army rising up against the right wing, not a usual situation. Independence movements that had been busy in African colonies of Mozambique, Portuguese, Congo, Angola and Guinea since the 1960s had forced dictators Salazar and then Catania to spend huge amounts on the military. Before April 1974, the Portuguese colonial wars in Africa consumed up to 40% of the Portuguese budget. A normal country would spend around 4% of its budget on the army, so you can see how warped Portugal was by the early 1970s. Initially, NATO countries supported the Portuguese, but there was a limit, and NATO had reached its limit. The independence wars in Africa became more unpopular in Portugal due to their length and cost. To compound this, Portugal had become a pariah state, and it was on the receiving end of worsening diplomatic relations with other United Nations member states. And then atrocities such as the Wirriyamu massacre in Mozambique, where the Portuguese army killed more than 150 civilians accused of supporting Frelimo guerrillas, undermined the war's popularity and the government's diplomatic position. The details of that killing are disputed, but the reality is the Portuguese people were sick and tired of their sons dying in faraway wars linked to colonialism, which had run its course. Military officers in Lisbon rebelled, and finally the mochelo Catano government relented Tens of thousands of Portuguese took to the streets mingling with the soldiers in clear support of the action as Catania was eclipsed. However, the Portuguese living in Africa saw the coup as a threat to their existence, and they were right. This event had tremendous strategic consequences for Southern Africa. For one, the South African government could no longer use Angola as a buffer territory or count on the Portuguese colonial forces to help fight Swabo. The consequence of the Carnation Revolution was the sudden withdrawal of Portuguese administrative and military personnel from its overseas colonies that happened overnight. Hundreds of thousands of Portuguese returned to Europe from Africa and other regions of the world. These included workers, small business people and farmers who had deep roots in their former colonies and they became known as the retornados. So what happened to Portugal's colonies? In Angola it was a disaster for expats and for the local population. The country began a decades-long civil war which involved the Soviet Union, Cuba, South Africa and the United States. Millions of Angolans died in the aftermath of independence due to armed conflict, malnutrition and disease. In Mozambique, a civil war erupted between Fulimo and Renamo, which left it one of the poorest nations in the world and that country is now dealing with an Islamic State threat after decades of corrupt government radicalized rural people, particularly in the north. In the Indies, East Timor, which had been run by Portugal, was invaded by Indonesia and remained occupied by that country until 1999, when it eventually achieved nominal independence. Guinea-Bissau experienced a brief civil war and a difficult transition to civilian rule only in 1998. The Atlantic islands of Cape Verde and São Tomé and Príncipe avoided civil war during the decolonization period, establishing multi-party political systems by the early 1990s. Macau remained a Portuguese colony until 1999, when China took control in a joint declaration and enacted a one-country-two-systems policy similar to that of Hong Kong, which of course is unravelling. By a treaty signed on the 31st December 1974, Portugal recognized the incorporation of former Portuguese India, including the hippie hideaway of Goa, into India itself. That was the end of Portuguese colonial rule across the world, and the repercussions in Africa were phenomenal. For South Africa's government, the years 1973 to 75 were marked by increased fears and the instability caused by Portugal's Carnation Revolution. There was nothing organized about the Portuguese withdrawal from Angola and Mozambique and in Angola, the three main armed resistance groups, the FNLA, UNITA and the MPLA, all saw themselves as the saviors of the people and immediately went on the offensive in 1974. We heard last episode how South Africa's Defence Minister P.W. Botha had suggested at a public meeting in the same year that a better trained military force may be required to defend the South West African border from insurgency. SWAPO had the backing of these independent movements and PLAN was conducting operations inside South West already. There was a kind of perfect storm developing. White nationalist government motivated by capitalism facing African nationalist movements motivated by communism. The Cold War main players... We're observing closely. As they say, choose your weapons. But the National Party was also facing an internal discussion about this. It was not a simple rubber stamp moment. Prime Minister B.J. Forster was trying to avoid an escalation, while the others in the army, such as Constant Volun, had been itching for years to throw the SADF into operations in southwest and further. Forster had been trying to convince African leaders that his government was a reasonable non-aggressor. Any sudden moves would throw out his master plan, and in Angola there were two other movements which made a confusing situation even more confusing. The front for the liberation of the enclave of Cabinda or FLEC wanted independence for that enclave, which is rich in oil. FLEC continues to fight on today. It's the only one of the resistant movements that is still determined to achieve independence from an already independent country. The other was the Eastern Revolt or RDL, which broke away from the Soviet-backed MPLA in 1973 and they were against Augustino Neto. By 1971, three years before the Carnation Revolution, the MPLA had begun forming squadrons of up to 145 troops, which were armed with an assortment of weapons, including 81mm mortars. The Portuguese in Angola watched the MPLA with a great deal of alarm. In 1972, the Portuguese were conducting counterinsurgency sweeps against the MPLA. Eventually, Augustinho Neto was defeated in 1973 and retreated into the Congo with close to 1,000 men, there, experiencing some problems with his main backer, the Russians, they were toying with the idea of supporting one of the MPLA factions led by a man known as Chipenda. He was important because early in 1973 he'd left the MPLA, founding the Eastern Revolt or RDL with 1,500 former MPLA followers and appeared to be gaining traction. It was then that Tanzanian President Julius Nyerere convinced the People's Republic of China which had begun funding the MPLA in 1970, to ally with the FNLA against the MPLA in 1973. So many acronyms, so little time, so many AKs. Holden Roberto's FNLA had suffered from being closely allied to the Congolese, as we've heard previously, but Roberto visited China at the end of 1973 and then secured Beijing's support. Then the Soviet Union cut off aid to the MPLA completely in 1974, when Revolta Activa, or Eastern Revolta RDL, split off from the mainstream MPLA. It was one messy military business in Angola, and things were going to get far messier. In July 1974, Holden Roberto, Augustino Neto, and Jonas Sabimbi met in Zaire and agreed to negotiate with the Portuguese as one political entity, but shortly afterwards, fighting broke out between the three, the FNLA, MPLA, and UNITA. Then, in November 1974, the Soviet Union resumed aid to the MPLA after Neto reasserted his leadership, and it was clear that the military left behind in Angola were now on the run. Folks, the chaos that was Angola was only just starting. Even the independence movements were fighting each other as they fought the Portuguese, then the SA Defence Force. Meanwhile, SWAPO moved its headquarters from Lusaka in Zambia to the Angolan capital, Luanda. For the first time, SWAPO now had a safe border across which they could escape when the SAD of actions in Obambaland, the Bombaland, the Caprivi, and Kaokoland became more focused. At this point, Sam Nyoma of Unita was still talking to the Russians and he told his Soviet contacts in Moscow that he planned to broaden the area of operations, first towards the Atlantic coast from his southern Angola strongholds, then move north into central Angola. Neto and Swapo did not like that plan. Swapo was moving as swiftly as possible to exploit the Portuguese departure from Angola, Within a few months of the collapse of Portuguese control in the south of Angola in 1974, that area was swarming with Swapo cadres. South African Defence Force recce or recon unit members then participated in a clandestine operation against Swapo across the border into Angola in May and June 1974. It was then that the SADF suffered its first combat death, Lieutenant Freddy Zili. What was really happening was that Swapo had seized the initiative and as we know from warfare, those who have the initiative control the overall strategy of ops. It was dusk on the 23rd of June, 1974, when 22-year-old Lieutenant Zeely was on the left flank of a patrol combing the bush. Two machine gun nests then opened up on that group. Zeely and Alliance Corporal Hillebrandt tried to attack the machine gun position, but Hillebrandt was pinned down. Zeely then managed to storm the position, overpowering one of the gunners. The second machine gun crew got away but Zili had been fatally wounded as he rushed the position. At the time, Defence Force Chief Admiral Hugo Biderman said Zili had been killed in a skirmish with a group of terrorists who attempted to cross the South African border. What he left out was that Zili was a Special Forces Lieutenant and that he had actually died inside Angola. By November 1974, Swapo bases of up to 70 men were operating out of southern Angola. They were accelerating their insurgency quickly, and the SA Defence Force appeared to be in a spot of bother. Swapo had succeeded in breaking out of the strategically unimportant territory of the Capribi and were now a real threat to those living in the southwest African highlands. Because southern Angola was the jump-off point, Swapo could infiltrate large bands of guerrillas into the Kavango as well as Ovamboland which immediately posed a major problem for the South Africans. The area of operations had gone up by hundreds of percent and tens of thousands of square kilometers. As Leopold Schultz says in his book, The SADF and the Border War, 1966-1989, to Swapo was even more ambitious than the South Africans realized. Clan's chief of staff, David Chimin Namholo, said the strategy was changed to cross into farming areas, going to urban areas, rather than just being in the north, or in the Caprivi, and so, within a short space of time, sabotage was reported across the country, and bombs would go off in towns like Vintu Kopabis, and Swakopmund within months back in Pretoria. Cabinet meetings were also heating up the Hawks in the South African government wanted to attack Swapo inside Angola officially, not as the Rekis, but in a far more visible manner. Prime Minister John Forster was against this idea; he was more cautious, and he held back. Even P.W. Butcher, who was later to become known as the main hawk in the party, had reservations, although he sympathized with soldiers like Constant Fillion. While all of this was going on, the Americans were agitating behind the scenes. So too were the Chinese, the Russians, and the Cubans on the other side. Ronald Reagan was in power in the United States, and his point man in Africa was Chester Crocker, who later said that the Americans were not only well aware of the shift in South Africa's strategy, but in support of such moves. There's much debate now about who knew what and when. You just have to stand back a little and read what was going on. Whatever your personal point of view about this is, the reality was that eventually Forster relented when the governments of the United States, Zaire, Zambia and Liberia reached out confidentially imploring the South Africans to stop the Marxists in Angola from taking power. At the same time, South Africans were dying in the war in Rhodesia, soon to be Zimbabwe. At about this moment... Four SA police were killed in a single contact with guerrillas, which brought the losses in both Rhodesia and southwest Africa to 19 dead, 37 wounded. The public was beginning to grow concerned. South African media reports were full of the skirmishes and battles in Rhodesia, with very few taking much notice of the Avambolan and Caprivi border war at this point. Of course, there were immense political and diplomatic implications for launching troops into Rhodesia, Mozambique and Angola. A major legal issue had grown more pressing. South Africa's Defence Act specified that SADF members could not be deployed across the borders except if they volunteered to do so. That did not slow things down much, with changes to the law requiring a stroke of the ministerial pen. Journalists discovered this much when in June 1974 they were flown into the Caprivi Strip for the revelation that was to have such an effect on tens of thousands of men and women. SADF soldiers and aviators were already in position along the 1,680 kilometer border that started at the Keneni River mouth and ended at the eastern Caprivi. And the media suddenly realized that the army was already deployed across the Angolan border. Hundreds of national servicemen were patrolling the entire region, led by permanent force officers working alongside sand trackers and black soldiers. These were fighting patrols, as well as hearts and minds or contact patrols. The latter were designed to improve the relationship between the SADF and locals. Scattered cars and villages were visited where medics dispensed treatment and other officials would provide farming advice. Grievances were aired. The SADF dutifully took notes. Hundreds of thousands of rands were already being spent on the Hearts and Minds campaign, what was later to become known as civic action operations. The journalists embedded in this visit noted one other fact, which was to have far-reaching implications. A number of the soldiers fighting in the SADF were black. At a media briefing during the visit, Defense Minister Boota said, the SADF had a place for people of all races, including blacks. Black locals had not been used as combatants in the South African forces officially, but they'd always had a support role. During the Anglo-Boer War, many thousands were armed, but it was something of an embarrassment for both the Boers and the British. The blacks had been sappers, logistical support, and they died in their thousands during the First and Second World Wars, but this was the first time a National Party minister had openly said blacks and whites would form an army that was to fight in South West Africa. This is not a fact well known outside of those who fought in the Defence Force. The usual narrative is a white army fighting blacks in Southern Africa, which was wrong. The Defence Force's political aim may have been merged at that point with the National Party, which was protecting white minority rule. But the actual army that fought various wars in the region was integrated in a far more extensive manner than is realized. Well, time to hold proceedings for this episode. In episode 9, we'll hear about what was known as the Alvor Agreement, which set the tone for the upcoming Angolan Civil War. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. You can also find a few bits of info on the website abwarpodcast.com. You can contact me directly as well on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.